Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, Russian invasion. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. We will not attack, strike, invade, quote unquote, whatever, Ukraine. Should Canada send weapons to Ukraine to help thwart a potential Russian invasion? Will threats of sanctions push the Russians from the brink? We'll speak with the former defense minister, now the international development minister, Harjit Sajjan, and we'll get reaction from the Russian ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov. Plus, hot seat? Can Alberta Premier Jason Kenney politically survive his disastrous COVID response, for which he's now apologized? Is he now pushing for more private health care? We go one-on-one -on -one with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Then, inflation nation. All of these governmental costs are driving up Canadians' costs. We are making the choice to be there to support Canadians. Inflation in Canada hits a 30-year high. Is there anything the federal government can do about it? Is it time to rein in the stimulus spending as interest rates are expected to rise? BNN Bloomberg host Amanda Lang joins us as our special guest. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. They want Canada to send weapons and more soldiers to help defend against a potential Russian invasion. But instead, Ukraine got a $120 million loan to help their economy, which Canada says is being destabilized by Russia. To be fair, they'd asked for support there as well. But Russia's doing a lot more than that. Russia has amassed 100,000 combat-ready troops on the border of Ukraine, a country they invaded back in 2014 when they illegally snatched and annexed the Crimean Peninsula. And Russian-backed forces in the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, continue to fight. But what will Canada actually do and how quickly? To find out, we asked the Defence Minister and the Foreign Affairs Minister to join us today to talk about it but they were unavailable. The government said the only person we could speak to about the crisis is the Minister of International Development and the former Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan. Minister, great to have you back on the program. Um, can we start with the loan to Ukraine, which you oversaw, uh, $120 million. Can Ukraine use that money to buy weapons to defend themselves against a potential Russian invasion? No, thanks for the question, Evan. And before I answer that question, I think it's important to put things into context uh, uh, for the viewers. Um, and what's happening in Ukraine right now is what we see is a continued aggression um, um, by Russia. In 2014, um, Russia illegally annexed uh, uh, Crimea. And this is a continuation um, of this. And so we're looking at all sorts of uh, suites of work uh, from different departments and coordinating with our allies. During uh, Minister Jolie's visit to Ukraine, where she met with uh, President Zelensky, um, the loan was requested, and we wanted to respond very immediately for the economic resiliency. So our officials will be working together on what those needs um, are, and they'll be able to work together on what those loans uh, will be used for. But there's a lot more work by other ministers that's currently taking place so that we have a more comprehensive right. um, but, but, but this is yours, Minister. I'm asking you specifically, yeah. can Ukraine use that money to buy weapons, yes or no? So this particular sovereign loan, um, no, you can't. But we have many other tools that we're going to be looking at as, as a government. But, but more importantly, closely consulting with our allies so that we have a comprehensive approach so that, somebody, that we send a very strong message to Russia 
that they um, that it that they should de-escalate and come and have a comprehensive dialogue um, with us on but, this. But, but let's go back to this loan. There's a hundred thousand Russian troops, combat-ready troops on the border. You know this well. NATO and the U.S. are saying an invasion could be imminent, and you're saying Canada has decided at their when the Ukrainians have asked for soldiers weapons and extension and money that Canada has said what we're going to do in this urgent moment is give a loan that you can use but you can't buy weapons with it. Is that like giving a man who's drowning a new pair of shoes? It doesn't help with the most urgent problem, sir, which is Evan, their I sovereign think, defense. But also the way you're also painting the picture, as I stated, Minister Jolie during her visit to Ukraine with President Zelensky, one of the first asks was about providing economic resilience so we wanted to respond very quickly other ministers within their own portfolios are working on other options and we're coordinating very closely with our allies but ukraine has also asked for weapons and the uk has committed to giving things like anti-tank weapons to ukraine the allies are not worried that doing that will escalate they're worried about the immediate invasion why won't canada send weapons to Ukraine and, and just be very specific. You're saying that you're considering it. Will Canada consider sending weapons to Ukraine? And if so, how soon? First of all, we coordinate w with our allies. We're actually in touch with our allies. Minister Anand has been working very diligently with uh, other defense uh, ministers, plus within uh, NATO. We also have been leading efforts in Ukraine alongside with um, uh, the U.S., the U.K., and Poland, and some other nations are also uh, part of this uh, is, is, as well. So we're looking at all uh, different options, but the options that we want to um, present, we pr want to present a more comprehensive approach from a Canadian perspective, but also uh, together with our allies. Look, I spoke to the Russian ambassador days ago, and the Russian ambassador to Canada is going to join us later on this program, just after you, by the way. But when I spoke to him earlier, he, he told me that the sanctions Canada threatened don't work. He essentially laughed at them. He said that they will not remotely alter whatever it is Russia's up to. Um, can you tell Canadians watching, um, is Canada considering other sanctions? And if so, what, sanction, what level of sanctions do you think might bite into Russia? Well, we're going to be looking at um, um, more options on this when it comes to uh, with sanctions are also greater sanctions on the on the table, more Magnitsky uh, type legislation uh, opportunities are also on, on this tab table. And um, obviously the, the Ukrainian ambassador will say what uh, whatever that the, the, the Russian, Russian leader wants. Sorry, the Russian uh, ambassador uh, w w wants to say, but keep in mind. Um, Ukraine is a uh, independent nation with a democratically elected uh, uh, government and the world is, is watching. So Russia doesn't seem to blink and now they're, they're amassing troops. Let me ask you this then. Um, Ukraine is calling for Canada to extend and expand its military training mission, Unifier there. There's 200 soldiers there and some special forces. Will Canada extend and expand that mission? Oh, first of all, when it comes to um, the, as you mentioned, from 2014, the invasion that took place, Canada took action. And we have actually increased our support to Ukraine with the evolution of uh, Operation Unifar. In fact, where uh, troops trained in one base, with where we expanded it for our troops training in other places. And now currently, Minister Anand is uh, looking at uh, the appropriate options, and she will take a very thoughtful approach, consulting very closely with the Minister of Defense from uh, Ukraine, plus other allies. And we will, and then she will have make make the forward recommendations, and we'll have more to say on this. I, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out because we asked the government about this. 
the government said you were the minister available to talk to Canadians, and, and you're saying the only answer you can give me is another minister has some answers? Like, is Canada going to extend the mission there or not? Why is that so Well, difficult? first of all, Evan, Evan you, you mentioned, you brought up a very good point when it comes to the Ukrainian uh, population within, within Canada. They are deeply concerned. This is something that we have been working, we have been working very closely uh, with them, and our hearts go, out, uh, go, hearts go out to them. But this is a very delicate and very serious, serious situation. This is why all ministers have been coordinating um, their work comprehensively to making sure that we get this right. Okay. Uh, can I just ask you one? I mean, it's, I'll be frank, sir, and respectfully. We haven't got a lot of new information here, but, but how soon will Canada make a decision on weapons? How soon will Canada make a decision on extending the mission? How soon will Canada make a decision on, uh, on concluding if Russia is at least using hybrid warfare and cyber attacks on Ukraine? When are we going to get some of the solid information? Well, first of all, I've been... All this has been taken into into account from from day, from day one. We've been monitoring things very closely. All ministers with the appropriate portfolios that need to act um, have been coordinating um, uh, their their work on this. This is not just about just getting answers. It's about getting it right. This is a, as you know and you've stressed and we all know how serious of a situation this is. What Russia is doing right now is extremely pro uh, provocative. What they've done in the past as well. We want to make sure that we can de-escalate. All right, I got to leave it there this morning. Uh, Minister Sajjan, I always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. All right. When we come back, Russia's response. As Canada threatens Russia with new sanctions, how will that country respond? Are they prepared to invade Ukraine? Russia's ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov, joins us next to find out. Stay right here with questions. Is a cold war with Russia about to get hot? With 100,000 combat-ready troops on the Ukrainian border, is Russia poised to invade? Remember, in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine and illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula. They continued to support destabilizing forces in the eastern region of Ukraine, the Donbass. NATO and Canada, of course, has warned Russia that an invasion will lead to severe sanctions and retaliation. We've been clear. If any... Russian military forces move across Ukraine's border, that's a renewed invasion. It will be met with swift, severe, and a united response from the United States and our partners and allies. Currently, Canada has over 200 members of the military in-country, along with special forces as part of Operation Unifier, and a Canadian frigate is sailing into the region to support the NATO mission. Meantime, on Friday, Canada also announced a $120 million loan to that country, though Canada has not promised to send weapons to Ukraine. So, what's the current status? Will Russia invade? What's their game plan? Let's find out. Joining me now, Russia's ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov. Uh, ambassador, always good to talk to you again. You and I spoke earlier in the week, and you said Russia had no intention of invading Ukraine. I know the government, your government has reiterated that. Why should anyone believe that your country is not going to invade when you've got over 100,000 combat-ready troops close to the border? Your country invaded Ukraine in 2014 and illegally took the Crimean Peninsula, and you've still got armed forces in the Donbass region. So why should Canada or any country believe that you won't invade? Hello, Ivan. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. And uh, can I ask you uh, questions in return <laughs> to your question? Uh, what would be the reason for Russia to invade Ukraine? 
you could tell me what the reason is to have 100,000 troops right on the border for a lot longer than any kind of military exercise. They have naval missions there. There are cyber attacks. I'd love to know the reason why you're doing it. That would be fantastic to find out. Well, uh, speaking about cyber attacks, nobody blamed Russia on the, on the recent ones. And, you know, um, the Ukrainian, uh, did the Ukrainians have blamed the Russians? Uh, oh, they always do. Uh, <laughs> but your government didn't. Uh, and obviously, Black Sea uh, is uh, also a Russian sea. And uh, we have uh, naval presence there permanently as a part of our <laughs> national uh, Navy building. And uh, as we spoke before, uh, having troops uh, on our own territory visit, whether it is uh, on the border of uh, one or another country, it's our sovereign decision. But once again, and my government reiterated it several times, and uh, I once again can assure you there are no uh, intentions, uh, no desire, and no will for Russia to uh, engage in any military uh, conflict or military operations vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. So, so, you know, so why uh, not just I, move uh, here? You, you uh, and I mean, let's be, let's try to just hew closely to the reality. If that's the case, sir, and we all hope it is, and uh, you know the temperature is extremely high. The NATO alliance is deeply concerned, as is Ukraine. They believe an invasion could be imminent. If Russia wants to show it has no intention of invading, simply move the troops, move the tanks away from the border. De-escalate a situation that Russia is responsible for escalating. Well, uh, once again, it's a matter of perception. If uh, the uh, United States and the West propaganda spin would uh, like to portray the way that uh, Russia concentrates uh, troops in one or another area, uh, just with the uh, uh, plan planning to, to invade uh, Ukraine. Well, this is one thing. But, you know, it's uh, like uh, presenting Russia as irrational megalomaniac, just uh, doing something in order to do something bad. But Canada and NATO countries have warned Russia that if there is any kind of incursion, any invasion, there will be deep sanctions on Russia. They will be severe sanctions. Uh, they also believe that you're trying to economically, your country is economically destabilizing Ukraine. What will Russia's response be if there are new sanctions on Russia, both financial ones and personal ones? We uh, spoke briefly about sanctions. My uh, strong conviction is that sanctions uh, don't work uh, economically. I know where the sanctions have effect. They uh, hurt political relations between countries. Uh, they uh, create uncertainty for business circles. And uh, it uh, hurts both sides, business communities on both sides. But sanctions never uh, make uh, countries uh, to change uh, their political course. Uh, there are no exam uh, examples in the history of international relations when unilateral sanctions were able to uh, push countries into another direction, contradicting their national interests. So in they, this they, sense, sanctions uh, don't work. Yeah, I think the West regards sanctions as a, uh, a constraint uh, to stop action. 
but so you're saying sanctions don't work. So the, how would the Russian government respond, sir, if Canada began to send weapons to support Ukraine? Well, it would be unfortunate and of course it would not uh, make our relations better because, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, uh, and, and, and internationally, you know, the standing of the countries uh, sending uh, the uh, armaments and weapons to Ukraine. You know, all members of the of OSCE agreed on a principle that uh, countries uh, with conflicts shouldn't be supplied. It's a voluntarily uh, promise that uh, uh, countries of OSCE uh, made not to supply such problematic countries with weapons because weapons only fuel those conflicts. And once again, we would uh, uh, very uh, uh, sad to see uh, that this simple, uh, right. uh, simple uh, thing is 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 not understood. Ambassador, uh, the Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, was in Ukraine. She was in Europe talking about this. Um, have there been any meetings uh, with her counterparts or de Lavrov in uh, between Canada and Russia? to de-escalate the situation on that side? Any high-level meetings between the Russians and the Canadians? Not yet, and uh, frankly speaking, it's a fortune that we would welcome such contact. Uh, Her Excellency Jolie had a chance to chat with Minister Lavrov on the margins of the OSC meeting last December in Stockholm and expressed her interest to come to Moscow for consultations uh, at, at some point. And my minister extended official invitation to Minister Jolie to, to come to Russia. You're saying the Russians, uh, Sergei Lavrov, yes. the Russian Foreign Minister, has invited Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister to Russia. Are you saying Canada has said no or Canada has not answered? We uh, are yes, waiting for the answer yet, but it, it happened in December, so uh, it's an open invitation. When Canadian government is ready, we will be welcome. Uh, we will be uh, well. We will be glad to host uh, uh, Minister Jolie in in Russia. Let me just quickly, Ambassador, ask you another question because the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity last Thursday released a statement warning of Russian-backed cyber attacks on critical Canadian infrastructure like electrical grids and energy firms. There's a real concern from our top security that Russia is engaged in hybrid warfare through cyber against Canadian infrastructure. What's your response to that? It's a, uh, well, absolutely false warning because uh, once again, uh, there is no rationale <laughs> for Russia to act this way. What, what, what practical gain, moral or financial material gain would Russia <laughs> have has if uh, have if uh, it's uh, hypothetically engaged in such an activities. You're saying Russia has no intent to cyber uh, attack Canada, no intent to in, in invade Ukraine. And maybe uh, in the weeks to come, we will see the temperature going down on all this. Ambassador, I do appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Evan. See you again. All right, coming up, under fire. Can Alberta Premier Jason Kenney survive an upcoming leadership review this spring? Is he pushing for more private health care options to help the beleaguered health care system? We'll go one-on-one -on -one with Premier Jason Kenney next. Stay right here with Question Period. 
To restrict or not to restrict, that is the question facing many provincial governments right now as the fifth wave of the pandemic continues. Many premiers are under close scrutiny these days over how to balance public health and the economy. And none may be facing more heat than Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Premier Kenney faced immense criticism for his handling of a crushing fourth wave last fall. And his leadership remains under the microscope by members of his own party with a review set for April. So... Has Premier Kenny learned from his pandemic mistakes? Does he think more private health care options should be offered now to help a beleaguered health care system? Let's find out. Joining me now is Alberta Premier Jason Kenny. Premier, good to have you back on the program. Good to be back, Evan. Look, there's lots of concern about if this has peaked or not. In your province, hospitalizations due to COVID-19 surpassed 1,000 for the first time since mid-October. There's makeshift beds for uh, for some of the uh, yeah. people. You got about, what, 5,500 Alberta Health staff out sick every day. Surgeries are delayed. Boy, it looks tough. Why have you said the peak is past? Uh, may, maybe things are, are, are still very serious to come. Yeah, well, it is a serious situation, but I believe we have passed the peak of transmission. Uh, our positivity rate seems to be coming down sharply, and our wastewater data shows uh, declines uh, in COVID in 15 of 19 communities where we track it. And as you know, Omicron around the world has typically been a four-week wave. So I think we're starting to come down. But we'll, we'll be going up in hospitalizations with the lag effect that we all know about for the next probably week or two. Um, and, and thankfully, because of the lower severity of this variant, uh, it's putting uh, relatively less pressure on the intensive care, which has really been our sensitivity in Alberta. So, um, you know, it's, there's going to be some difficult days ahead still for our healthcare right. workforce, but uh, it, it is, I think, something, I think we're going to be able to manage to get through this. Okay. You know, everybody's, you didn't put in the same kind of restrictions that some of the other provinces, like Ontario and Quebec, did. Uh, are you worried that you are going to downplay the seriousness of COVID as you did in that best summer ever, which you've apologized for, and that was optimism trumping science? Are you worried about that again? Well, no. Uh, by the way, Evan, we, we took advice from our, our medical experts on uh, public health experts on the uh, l approach of moving to endemic management in the summer. It turns out with Delta and its uh, severity that uh, we were under-vaccinated. And the key factor here, Evan, is vaccination. We have gone from about 75% to 90% first dose coverage amongst adults. We've caught up. We were 10 points behind, but we've now caught up with the national average on vaccinations. And quite frankly, uh, we are seeing, uh, together with Saskatchewan, the two least uh, re restricted provinces in the country so far on Omicron, we are seeing um, significantly less pressure on the hospitals than Ontario and Quebec that have had more far more stringent restrictions. You've caught up on first doses in Alberta, but third dose or booster shots, which have proven to reduce hospitalization. So that's a real key weapon in protecting the healthcare system. Alberta's behind the national average. It's some of the lowest in the country. Uh, you're lagging yeah. behind, we're 27% in Alberta. Right, the national average is close to 30. Ontario is 33. Why are you, why is Alberta lagging behind, and what are you going to do to increase it? We've done everything we can. We're, I think we were the first province that that came out with a vaccine lottery. We have uh, spent uh, millions of dollars promoting uh, the safety and efficacy of vaccines. We have a vac proof of vaccination program for people participating in discretionary, high risk activities, etc. Uh, at the oh, at the end of the day, though, it, it's people's choice, and and I think what we're seeing in Canada, not just Alberta, on the booster shots, frankly, you know, with a lower uptake than I expected, is just 
I, I, Evan, I just think a lot of people in a way are, are checking out. Like they're just not um, organizing their lives around COVID anymore. And uh, I will, will continue to urge people to get that booster shot. It can really uh, be helpful in, in keeping them um, from severe symptoms and hospitalization. But at the end of the day, it's a free society. And I think what got policymakers, what we've all got to come to terms with is how do we move out of Omicron and, and, and gradually, carefully learn to live with this thing because it's going to, this disease will be right. with us uh, in different variants for some time to come. The federal government has floated the idea that provinces should talk more about mandatory vaccines. What is your solution if, if the unvaccinated take up a disproportionate number of hospital beds and ICU beds? What do you do about that? I think it's really, uh, well, listen, you're, you're, you're right about that latter point. And, and it's a, an important message to convey to the unvaccinated that their personal choice also is a social choice with broader consequences. 70% uh, of our ICU COVID patients um, are unvaccinated from 10% of the adult population. So the surgery postponements and cancellations of medical procedures, all much of that comes from those individual choices. Now, having said that, Evan, this is still a free society. And the idea of violating somebody's bodily autonomy to force them to be injected with something against their will, I think is clearly unconstitutional. We have to do everything we can. We, but in no, Alberta, no one's we have done that, just to be clear, right? The longstanding no, no, no legal power of government to impose a mandatory vaccination. Go ahead, sir. So I'm just saying, no, no, I just want to be clear. No government is, there's no mandatory vaccines. There are carrots and sticks, and there are some pretty big sticks now in, in Quebec, which they're talking about uh, a tax. Sure. Uh, Evan, I really think that is contrary to the whole idea of a universal public health care system uh, to start sending people a bill because we, we disagree with the choices that they've made. With the moment you walk into the hospital, it's a judgment-free zone in terms of the choices people have made. You provide them with care, medically necessary care. That's, I think, a Canadian and certainly an Alberta value. Okay. Here you are championing the, uh, the idea of universal health care and accessible, but you also floated the idea because there's surgical delays in Alberta, as you know, of surgeries at private clinics to alleviate the burdens. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because you know, as soon as you say, let's do private clinics for surgeries, two-tier health care, Jason Kenney on, is trying to have it both ways, protect the universal health system and also open the door for private health care. It's not two-tier care, uh, Evan. We're talking about massively expanding the numbers of surgeries that we perform, which are publicly insured, no cost to the patient. Um, but <laughs> what, surely, Evan, we've got to come to terms with uh, the limitations of the Canadian healthcare system that have been spotlighted through COVID. The fact that we have one of the most expensive systems in the developed world with some of the poorest outcomes, uh, with some of the lowest uh, availability per capita of ICU beds and other hospital beds. This is not acceptable. If we can have privately operated surgical facilities funded by the government through Medicare, provide those at lower cost and more efficiently because they, they know how to use capital more efficiently right. than, than big government hospitals, then why shouldn't we do that? We're funding it. We put a billion dollars in our last budget for the surgical initiative. Uh, Premier, look, uh, every time the premiers meet with the prime minister, they ask for more money for health care. There's real needs for more money in the system. I get it. But you know that's a song that provinces have sang for a long time. But you still, sir, need to pay for health care. It's provincial jurisdiction. 
Some say Alberta is the only province without a sales tax or an HST to help pay for things that are provincial responsibility like health care. Every single other province has one. Will you consider some kind of HST or sales tax to help pay for the health care the citizens need? Uh, no, Evan, the, the problem isn't Alberta being undertaxed, for goodness sakes. We contribute net, I mean, not COVID was an exception, but over the past 20 years, we've been contributing $20 billion more to the federal treasury than we've gotten back uh, in benefits and transfers as individual Alberta taxpayers. So we pay for, we help to subsidize healthcare transfers all across Canada. Alberta's not the problem. We are, we in our economy are the solution in some respects. We need common sense reforms, but we also need additional funding, uh, getting us up to 35% federal share of healthcare costs, which is what the provinces are asking for, would be worth over $3 billion coming back to Alberta taxpayers so we could help to fund that. Premier, federal government has a mandatory vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, as you know, and this weekend the U.S. had the exact same policy. So now on both sides for cross-border truckers. There has been concern that this would sideline between 8,000 and 12,000 truckers. Um, you have said you're against the imposition of this, but the U.S. has it now. Why are you against the imposition of this? Uh, I think it's about 9% of truckers are not vaccinated. Well, just because the Americans are doing it doesn't mean we should shoot ourselves in the foot, first of all. Secondly, we should be vigorously lobbying them, lobbying Washington uh, to delay the implementation of that. I understand that there can be, in some cases, a legitimate argument for uh, vaccine mandates, um, as we've done with our hospital workers, with a rapid test option. But we, we should also apply this with a heavy dose of common sense, Evan, because uh, we already have serious supply chain challenges. There are grocery store shelves across the country that are going empty. We're dealing with huge inflation. And taking 10% of the truckers off the roads, bringing groceries from the U.S. to Canada at this time in the winter makes very little sense, particularly when it's not going to have any measurable benefit uh, uh, in terms of viral transmission. Okay, i got to leave it there. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Evan. Okay, after the break, inflation bites again. Inflation hits a 30-year high. Are there any immediate solutions from the Liberal government? And could the inflation pressure boost interest rates as early as this week? BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang is our special guest on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Groceries, gas, cars, inflation is hitting everything, including hitting a 30-year high. In December, Canada's inflation rate reached 4.8%. That's the highest the country has seen since 1991. Pocketbook issues instantly become political issues, and the opposition has seized on inflation as its core message. But a new voice has now weighed in. In a new report, the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, concludes that the federal government's rationale to spend over $100 billion in stimulus money in the next couple of years is no longer justifiable. Why? He argues that the government has now reached its own benchmarks of success. That is, we've reached pre-pandemic job numbers. So he argues, why do they need to keep spending money? But the Prime Minister is giving no indication that the spending will be reined in. We're going to continue to be there to support Canadians because we know that helping each other out is not just the best way to get through this medical challenge, this pandemic crisis. It's also the best way to make sure our economy comes roaring back as strongly as possible. 
One way to cool inflation is to raise interest rates, and this week the Bank of Canada is set to release its first interest rate decision of the new year. The expectation will be the first of a series of rate hikes. So, how does this cost-of-living issue cut politically? Should the Liberals reinvest or revisit their stimulus plan? The Scrum is here to tackle all those questions. Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, joins us. Tonda McCharles, parliamentary reporter with The Star, joins us. And our special guest is BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang. Uh, good morning to all of you. Amanda, 30-year high inflation. Government says it's, you know, the governor of the bank says it's transitory but not short-lived. Can you just give us your assessment? Is inflation here for the long haul? What are the drivers here? I mean, we know that some of the drivers, they're global in nature, of course, supply chain issues. We've heard all about this, Evan. Some of the other drivers are what the PBO is referring to, and that is uh, the stimulative efforts, including by the central bank, to help us uh, avoid a, a deep recession during a pandemic. Now the central bank is going to raise rates. And as we've heard, some economists say starting next week up to 2% this year. What I, I think we should actually put a pin and stop and say, what does that actually mean? Why do they raise rates and how does that help inflation? And we should remember that what they're actually doing is trying to slow down growth. That's what happens. They make it more expensive to borrow. It means people don't borrow. They save instead. It slows down the economy. It's the, really the only lever they have. Have. And now the PBO is saying the government should do the same. Although, Tonda, they're not massive uh, interest rates are going up, but, but it does send a signal to try to cool the housing market. What do you make of the government's line? Look, um, we're sticking to the line that these are global issues, and the best fight is the child care plan we've got. That's going to help Canadians. Does that still cut it, Tonda? Well, look, I, I think that there, for some provinces where Premiers are already prepared to roll out early reductions in childcare fees as a result of the federal spending on childcare. That helps some families. Uh, like Amanda said, politically it's such a big dance. The government has signaled already they are not about to pull back on their childcare spending. They're not about to pull back on housing initiatives this year in an effort to build supply in the housing markets. But, you know, so Yves Giroux can talk all he wants about they met their former fiscal uh, benchmarks or guardrails such as they were. The, the fact of the matter is the reality is political. Every Canadian family will feel it in one way or another in their pocketbook, in their gas tank, in their, in, in their, in their lives and in their household budget. So uh, very tricky for the Liberals to go ahead the next few months and um, you know the Conservatives definitely see it as a political winner. Yeah that's their focus. Joyce you want to weigh in on the politics of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, what the what the conservatives are saying is, is you know, sounds good. It's it's good talking points. But the, the, the truth of the matter is there isn't much the government can do about supply chains, for instance, which is one of the big culprits uh, of all this. And, you know, COVID-19 and the bad weather. Problem is, is those are all complicated, complicated uh, concepts. And it's hard for the government to counter the attacks of conservatives who are calling it just inflation. Um, you know, they have really good keywords and hashtags. So this is going to become a political battle. And I fear that it's going to become a battle based on false, on, on false things and not a real conversation that they should have in Parliament about should we stop this spending? What should, we, what, what should the government wait for? And, you know, how will we be, how will the economy be coming out of all this? Yeah, Amanda, you, you talked about the, the monetary side, which is the Bank of Canada. That's one lever. On the fiscal side, which is what the government controls, what levers do they have on this? 
So, and it, I think this is an important point that's being made here, which is, we, we obviously all Canadians know, not all government spending is the same, and not all government spending is inflationary. And, you know, you can make a case that childcare is spending by government that government could do best, which whatever you think of big government or small government, that's the kind of spending government should do, the, the, the best, the one that they will do better than anyone. Uh, you could argue if childcare is infrastructure, government should do it. I'm not making that argument, but you can. And that, that's not inflationary. It's an infrastructure build that actually lowers costs for businesses, increases the labor pool. So you could say that whole pool of money is non-inflationary. But there is government spending, especially the spending that puts hands in pe uh, money in people's pockets, that's inflationary. Uh, that's the toughest one to turn off, Evan, because politically it's the one they like the most. Is there, are there any short-term ways for the government uh, to deal with this? Or do they, are they just trying to ride it out? Look, I think there's a pretty much a consensus among a lot of people that uh, there's very little that in the short term the government can do to make prices drop, basic everyday items drop in price for Canadian families. Uh, and there is no question that the trucker shortage will affect the supply chain in the months to come in Canada. We depend so much on truck traffic coming across the border, bringing goods, produce, fresh produce in the winter, all of that. Uh, however, I, I just, I just want to loop back to the whole thing about childcare. Look, this is such a signature piece for this government. Um, their argument is actually that this is an investment in economic growth for the country, that it will put a lot more families in a position where, whereby mostly mothers can go back into the workforce and eventually that grows, that is a, a, a driver of economic growth. And they have pointed to Quebec where the evidence is of that. So don't expect them to drop back on that. Yeah, Joyce, last word on, on where this is going, because this has animated the opposition, the Conservatives. Uh, they've got committees studying this. Uh, this has become their major weapon. Absolutely. And then there was a poll out this week uh, uh, helping the Conservatives, of course, where 57 percent of Canadians are saying some of them uh, they're going to have to struggle to put some some food or some good food on the table. So you are going to see out there a lot of Canadians who are struggling, a lot of Canadians who are frustrated, a lot of Canadians who are angry. There's COVID out right. there. So it is going to be a rocky road for the Liberals. That's the way I see uh, when the when parliamentarians come back. Uh, there's going to be a lot of heated arguments and a lot of finger pointing whether justified or not. It doesn't matter. It's effective. Inflation is political kryptonite for any government. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Amanda and Tonda, great to have both of you on the program. Joyce is sticking around. When we come back, Russian invasion. Should Canada send weapons to Ukraine as Russia is poised to potentially invade? What more can or should Canada do to help? The former Vice uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, Mark Norman, joins us as our special guest next. Stay right here with Question Period. Deny, deny, deny. As you saw earlier in the program when I spoke to the Russian ambassador to Canada, Russia denies any interest in invading Ukraine, despite the fact that they have 100,000 troops right at the border and have invaded that country before in 2014 when they snatched Crimea. They deny having any cyber attacks on Ukraine and threatening cyber attacks on Canada. Despite all this, Canada and its NATO allies are so concerned about what they're seeing that they're threatening severe sanctions if Russia takes military action. We reject Russia's false narrative that Ukraine or NATO are threats. The recently launched diplomatic process offers Russia two options. 
They can choose meaningful dialogue or swift, severe consequences. So, should Canada do more to de-escalate the situation? Should Canada be sending arms to Ukraine? Let's find out. The Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. Marika Walsh from the Globe and Mail is here. And our special guest this round is the former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, great to have uh, both Marika and uh, retired Admiral Norman, and thanks for your service, sir. Uh, back alongside Joyce and Mark Norman, let me just start with you, um, Vice Admiral. Um, look, Russia denies any interest. They deny cyber attacks. That's all Western propaganda. How do you read the situation? Where are we right now? Well, you know, the denials are, are amusing. I think, uh, obviously, um, they're in their own interests to deny both their capability and their intent. Um, as we're looking at this, obviously, uh, there's a significant physical overmatch uh, in terms of Russian forces uh, in Ukraine. Um, I guess at best, uh, this is an example of uh, extremely aggressive posturing on the part of Russia. In terms of uh, the comments about cyber, um, you know, I, it's hard not to laugh um, at their denial uh, of the assertion. Uh, we know for a fact that the Russians uh, are experts in what's described as hybrid warfare, where they use uh, multiple levers of influence. Um, including espionage, economics, uh, cyber, uh, every other lever they can use to influence uh, their end game. In this particular case, um, you know, I don't know any more than anybody else, but my instinct is that uh, even if they don't actually um, cross the border or whatever tripwire uh, the West is able to articulate, which at the moment isn't really clear, mm -hmm. Um, they're already achieving their strategic objectives. Uh, they're disrupting um, the Western leadership. But Joyce, what, what's your read on what Canada should do? Russia seems to laugh at the idea of more sanctions. We haven't promised weapons to Ukraine. What's your view on Canada's next move? Well, on those sanctions, it will ha obviously have to be internationally coordinated. The Canadian sanctions, uh, you know, the, the ambassador, the Russian ambassador to Canada scoffed at it. He practically laughed at that, at the Canadian sanctions. Look, it, uh, it seems that Russians have a war chest. Um, and it also seems that they have issues that will divide the Europeans. You've got France. Uh, which is irritated with the United States over sales with nothing to do with Ukraine, but over sales of submarines to Australia. Uh, you've got uh, the Germans who rely on the Russian uh, natural gas. So already you've got all sorts of different interests. Marika, let me just go to you. Um, Canada still considering whether to send weapons, still considering whether to extend the training mission Unifier in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What are the options for Canada? Well, that was so interesting, Evan, about the Prime Minister's comments on Friday and earlier last week that he didn't take anything really off the table when he was asked explicitly about, about being involved in any, in any military force in, in delivering weapons. He said he, it was hypotheticals. He wouldn't take things off the table. They're looking at all their options. And so while we see that Canada and the U.S. have very strong positions and very harsh or harsher rhetoric than the Europeans maybe on Russia, that's partly because Europe is so much more reliant on Russia for energy and so much more integrated economically because they're so much closer. So one of the questions is how united a front can the NATO allies actually 
put forward to Russia to show they are on the same page. Mark Norman, I get practical. We got a frigate sailing in, and I know we're going to work in conjunction, as Joyce and Marika have said, with the NATO alliance. But should Canada be shipping arms to Ukraine now? Should Canada be contributing in a more robust way? Yeah, well, I think uh, I'd like to go back to what Marika just said because it, it's really interesting when you look at what other countries are doing and uh, make comparisons. Um, you know, we're, we're we're doing something. Uh, at least we're actively engaged. Uh, I think there's valid questions about what more we could or should be doing. But it's interesting when you look at some of the traditional Eastern uh, partners in in the alliance and how they're far more. Um, outspoken and concerned, and of course that goes back to their history, um, the whole debate over the nature of um, weapon systems, whether they're defensive, offensive, uh, you know, that, that's a political debate that is unhelpful at the end of the day. It really comes down to what does Ukraine need and what can we provide, and that should be the calculus across the alliance. I think we should get over this concern. We seem to be one of the strongest advocates for supporting Ukraine um, out there at the moment, but at the same time, we keep tripping over ourselves with respect to the nature of um, military support that we might provide. Joyce, um, Justin Trudeau keeps saying if we send arms, that could escalate. We want to de-escalate. What do you make of that rationale? Well, it's a difficult one because the Ukrainians are saying whatever we're asking for, we need now before an invasion. After the invasion, I mean, we've heard them all week saying it would be too late. Um, so, so they're putting their, their allies, uh, their friends, uh, in a difficult position because if you do it, uh, then it would be seen and perceived, and Russia has already warned about that as an escalation. If you don't do it and the Russians invade, then you haven't done enough. And the Conservatives have, Marika, supported sending weapons. So just uh, what are the politics of this for the government? Well, the politics are, are multi-level, right? There's the international politics of just following a rules-based system and, and not threatening to invade a country. Then there's the politics within NATO that we've already talked about. But then there's also the domestic politics. The Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is very big yeah. and has a big political influence. And so they have domestic implications as well for wanting to be showing that they are involved, that they are a friend of Ukraine. And I think we will see more of that play out. Uh, Vice Admiral Norman, great to have you on the program. Joyce and Marika, always a pleasure to have the two of you as well. Uh, that is question period for this week. Thanks so much for watching to all of you. I'll see you tomorrow night at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel on Power Play. But for now, hug your loved ones and we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.